0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the uh, coordinator of public programs here, and we're really pleased to see some hearty souls who came out on this the first cold night of Baltimore winter. We're really glad you did. I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, It's a pleasure to welcome Jennifer, Jenny Holland, to the Pratt Library and the Poe Room this evening. Um, Jenny's previous best-selling books, are uh, unlikely friendships and unlikely loves, and we have copies of both of those as well as her new book here for sale tonight. Um, these books showed us the rich inner lives, the rich inner lives of animals, and the power of love. In her new book, Unlikely Heroes, she tra- shares true tales of animal heroism. Jennifer Holland is a contributing writer for National Geographic. She also writes for the Earth Touch News Network and other online science news organizations. She lives in Silver Spring, Maryland, with her husband, three dogs, dozens of snakes and geckos, okay... And we hope she'll tell us about some of those <laughs> adventures. Um, and as I said, we have copies of all three books here for sale. They're $10 a piece. And we um, hope that you'll decide to take one home with you tonight. And Jennifer will be signing them after her talk. So, welcome, Jennifer. Hi.
1: Yes, I will second that. Thank you for coming out on such a cold night. We weren't sure if uh, there would be any faces here today, so I appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm an animal lover from way back, um, living in a small house with three large dogs, and uh, and my husband raises pythons, and we breed geckos, so we have just kind of this crazy zoo at home, and, and that's just always been a really important part of my life, and I've been so fortunate to turn that into a career, um, not just the having of the animals, but um, the other thing that I'd love to do, which is write. And uh, so I'll apologize. Also, my voice is kind of going. Hopefully it will stay with me for this. And uh, I'm just going to talk a bit about some of the work I've done for National Geographic and how that's kind of led to um, this series of books and, and hopefully what I'll be doing in the future with that. So as I mentioned, animals have just been something I've always adored. It was kind of in my genes from the beginning. My mother was a person that brought home every stray animal. Sometimes she would take a dog right out of its front yard, thinking that it was a stray, and bring it home. And we never accepted the reward money when we got those dogs back to their homes. But um, but it was just always a, a big part of my life to have animals around me. I think I was supposed to be uh, to grow up on a farm. I didn't have that opportunity, unfortunately. And what that ultimately led to was um, spinning off into to writing for a fantastic magazine uh, and getting to really get into everything that I love about animals, really to learn a lot about them and, uh, and to see a lot of them in person out in the world, which has been fantastic. And then from there, the series of books uh, that I'll talk about as well. My three pups, I always have to give them credit because they're a big part of my day. Um... We have a couple of Korean jindos and a, a Kai Ken, a Japanese breed. Uh so we're we're into some rather unusual dogs that we've rescued. And uh again that's been a big inspiration for me is just having creatures around me all the time. So I got very interested in in just kind of why I personally love animals so much and why that seems to be such a phenomenon because especially with the internet, you know, they say that that cat videos I think maybe aside from pornography, are the most shared uh, videos out there or something. And I'm, you know, everybody I know is constantly posting some sort of silly animal thing. And uh, it just seems to be really something that's ingrained in a lot of people. And, of course, I think we're, we're sort of programmed for that. Obviously, if we didn't like cuteness so much, we probably would not stick around when you know, the little babies needed our attention. Uh, And there's actually research really to show this, that we have this innate, you know, attraction to certain characteristics that are considered to be cute. And some of those are, you know, the big bright eyes that are close together, smallness, floppy limbs, sort of a a silly gait, furriness, helplessness. These are things that human adults really do respond to. And we certainly see a lot of those things in, in the animal kingdom. Okay, some of this doesn't work so well. Um, but there was also some interesting studies that really show the way that the brain centers that respond to things like sex and drugs are the same things that respond to uh, a lot of these these characteristics in animals, which sort of explains why we're all smiling at the zoo, I guess. <laughs> so writing about cute things is always fun, and that's been a big part of these books, certainly the attraction of the books. Uh, people respond to the photographs initially. But a lot of my work has been about um, animals that aren't necessarily, that that's not sort of the most important thing about them. Um, I've done a lot of work about um, in the environment, different animals that are struggling in some way. What is it about a habitat that is in trouble? Uh, What is it that certain animals need in that habitat? So this was a story we did about um, sharks in the Bahamas. And we were interested in understanding why so many different species of sharks actually thrive in the Bahamas, and then in other parts of the world, they're not doing so well. So we were looking at what is it in that environment, in that habitat, that allows them to thrive the way that they do. Um, And this was a a tiger shark we called Emma, and that's me. And um, what was so incredible about that is this is a breed of shark that you hear a lot of really scary stories. They call them the the garbage disposals of the sea. They eat everything. uh, They have a pretty bad reputation uh, around people. And we found an area where a whole lot of um, female and young male tiger sharks seem to congregate and had just this amazing experience swimming with them. They were very cordial. Um, they, you know, s- sort of stayed at a respectful distance and allowed us to really observe them and spend time in the water with them. So this was a really a great adventure for me. Uh, we worked on a story about birds of paradise, and I spent about five weeks in Papua New Guinea, um, really the sort of quintessential National Geographic experience camping out with the Bushmen and, and hiking and doing just all the things that I sort of anticipated and hoped I would get to do in my life. And just incredible to see these um, these elaborate birds that just really ha- have this life where they don't have to be too concerned about predators and things like that. They really have it fairly easy, and so they're, um, they're able to use that energy um, to look the way they do so the male birds have these incredible colors and dances and performances and if you find the right spot to sit and watch them you get to see them put on these shows for the females and it's just like something out of a a cartoon it's really you just can't believe this is real and um, it was just again just an incredible experience to witness them in person and to really um, just kind of immerse yourself in this environment where they thrive and the other neat thing about them was that the, uh, we spent some time at a cultural show in New Guinea where a lot of the different tribes come together to perform, and there was this really neat kind of juxtaposition between the, mostly the men um, who dress you know for the, the festival in just these bright colors and feathers, and they put on these shows, and it was just this really neat thing between the male birds and these men kind of doing the same thing, and I think there's, there's something to that. I think they, they learned a lot from these animals. Um, I write a lot as much as I can about um, about science and how what we learn from animals we can apply to our own lives and This was a study that some uh, some researchers in Minnesota are doing on black bear heart uh, performance? And what is it about bears that allows them to spend all those weeks and weeks in hibernation? And yet when they come out, their hearts are perfectly healthy. They don't have to build themselves back up. Uh, Their muscles haven't atrophied. They're in in perfect health. And so they've been monitoring the hearts of these bears and trying to figure out, is there something that we can learn that we can apply to medicine uh, for heart disease? that you know that can be something that we can use in in our own pharmaceuticals. Um, I also spent some time working on uh, stories about venom and how we're using venom in medicine as well. And same kind of idea. There's components in venom uh, from all different kinds of animals that we can apply to our our drugs and that actually are already applied. Um, some of the most used diabetes meds and heart meds uh, have a component in them that has, came from snake or Gila monster venom. So you never know what you're taking <laughs> when you're out there getting your, your medicine. I write a lot about conservation and the good and the bad, uh, about conservation and the issues surrounding it. Um, people have probably heard about the, the bats that have been dying off around the country from a, a fungus called white-nose syndrome. Um, the honeybees has been a big issue the last decade or so with the first colony collapse disorder and then now I think sort of a combination of problems where we're just seeing massive die-offs of bees. And you hear about these things in the news for a little while and then I think people get kind of tired of it and they aren't thinking about it anymore. But um, but these things are continuing. Um, amphibians just recently now, they're seeing a similar die-off of salamanders that they were seeing of frogs in the last uh, six or seven years and it's just it's interesting because you're seeing kind of a um a lot of parallels in what's going on where they they can't find a smoking gun. there seem to be a lot of different factors there's there may be pollutants there may be chemicals um you know some of it is probably things we're doing some of it probably isn't but um but what it comes down to is just the struggle to try to pull these animals back from the brink and uh and also just to observe what happens when as they disappear. And it's really it's quite frightening to see all these different animals struggling that way. Some of the things I write about actually are, are fun and hopeful. This was a, a project some of you may have heard of um, for whooping cranes, which is a very endangered bird. And um, some scientists actually trained these birds to follow these ultralight aircraft. And they did so so that they could actually alter the migration routes of these birds in order to give them a safer route to travel across the country um, because of all the development that's been going on along their traditional routes. And so over the years, they've built up these populations, they've trained them, and gotten some of these populations to actually fly different ways in order to give them resting grounds and feeding grounds uh, on their trips between Florida and Texas. And uh, so it was fun to get up there and get a bird's eye view and sort of see what it looks like to be a crane. Oh, lots of fun for the kids on these. Sorry about that. <laughs> so So the other aspect of all this that interested me as I mentioned, is just I've, I've always been fascinated by animal behavior, animal nature, and, and just what is it that animals are capable of in terms of emotion? It's always been kind of taboo. Even you know, Jane Goodall was criticized for many, many years for applying human terms to to the chimpanzees that she studied and i think it's becoming much less taboo now i think there's many more researchers studying uh, animal brains animal intelligence a lot of work on dogs a lot of work on on primates and really showing this this neat crossover and you know not that we all experience the exact same thing but certainly giving animals a little bit more credit for what they're capable of doing for their thought process, um, for, you know, some of the things that that we always thought were just human things aren't necessarily just ours. So these were just some of the somewhat recent findings. Probably you've heard about the elephant's mourning, going back to the areas where an elephant has died, caressing the bones. Uh, More recently, there was a study showing how they console one another um, if one of them is stressed and there is a, a physical component and a vocal component that is very, very similar to something um, that we would be familiar with. they I don't know how they got dogs to sit still in an MRI machine, but apparently somebody did that and has shown, you know, again, lighting up of the brain in the same places that the human brain lights up when they have um, someone that they're familiar with, someone they consider a, a positive influence in some way. This is always interesting when they look at kind of the, the evolutionary side of these things. You know, what benefit is it for an animal to share food um, with an animal that's not related or that isn't an alpha, that isn't above it? And, you know, to to give resources to an animal that isn't in one of those positions doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about the, the evolutionary aspect of it. And yet they'll find that that chimpanzees will definitely do that. They will share uh, their food with other members that aren't really um, in those positions. With rats, they've showed very much that rats will respond to uh, another rat that's stressed out or that's upset, um, with also vocalizations and also a physical component as well. Uh, when I talk to kids, I talk a little bit about the limbic system being, you know, the center of of emotion and uh, a place that. You know, it's not—it's not just a human thing in the brain. They find these same formations in in other animal brains, and um, again, there's no reason not to think that these other animals are capable of a lot of the same emotions that we are. So, of course, we don't really know. You know, it's—it's it's fun to think we know what joy looks like on a dog's face or a cat's face, but um, I always like to to put these in here just because we—it's—it's uh, it's hard not to think these are happy animals. <laughs> Certainly other animals are going to experience fear. That's going to be a very natural natural part of their lives as much as ours. So regret is one of those ones that's a little bit tricky. And I think the uh, the most recent research I read talks about how um, dogs really are responding more to, to our response than they are necessarily to understanding what it is they did wrong. So in a case like this, probably doesn't know that he shouldn't have chewed the shoe, but he knows that you're really, really angry at him. And uh, is unhappy with that because dogs certainly want to please their owners. Loneliness, certainly, a lot of animals are very social, as we know, and they really do require. Um, Other animals in order to thrive and that's a case in 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 elephants and in primates and others Um, They've shown many many times especially in primates that physical touch is so important between the animals that infant Animals will not do well will have a lot more health problems than others if they're not physically handled as babies Yep Yes. Yeah, yep. that one of those stories is in actually one of the books. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I've heard it, that a number of times with dogs and elephants. That seems to be in a, uh, for some reason a pairing that seems to work really well. <laughs> so loneliness definitely is is an issue with many, many animals. And then empathy, this is one of the ones that I think is more recently, we're really starting to see more and more about the compassion that animals can show and they seem to understand uh, what another animal or a person needs on a certain level. So that's what kind of got me for the first two books. Um, I started looking into, you know, you get these photos online all the time of, of animals kind of, paired up with with other species. And you think, well, that, again, evolutionarily, that doesn't make sense. Maybe in captivity you can see you raise your dog and your cat together, and so it's not that surprising. But sometimes you have these circumstances where there's something else going on. And I wondered, a lot of these pictures, are they Photoshopped, or did people just put them together for the picture? And so I started to research them and found that there were just endless stories, true stories, with, you know, really just great... Uh, Unusual sometimes circumstances behind them that led to these um, these moments of compassion between animals that you wouldn 't expect, so from the first book, um, excuse me a few of the, the stories that I love the elephant and the sheep so here 's another elephant situation, and this was a case where an elephant had lost its mother in Kenya, and the people at the facility decided it needed, they needed another animal with it but didn 't have an elephant. And sheep, I never really realized how smart sheep are, but apparently they're very, very intelligent. They can uh, learn faces, they can memorize, and apparently can know hundreds of different faces, things like that. But for some reason, these two became really very, very close. They actually started sharing food. Um, The elephant would try the food that the sheep was eating, and the sheep would eat food off a tree that the elephant was eating, things that they normally wouldn't do at all. And um, I think it's really because of that sheep that the elephant survived at all, because I think it wasn't doing very well at all uh, before they brought it a friend. And And they're both vegetarian, that's right. The uh, Great Dane and the Blind Fawn, this was a, a, a vet brought home the fawn to take care of it at home, and um, and her dog just sort of took on this role on its own. She didn't encourage it at all. She didn't train the dog. The dog just started leading the deer around, uh, would sh- you know, show it its bed, bring it to the food, and they became inseparable. And again, it wasn't, wasn't anything that was um, encouraged in any way. She just sort of let them find their own friendship. The cheetah and dog... Um, this is kind of neat because they've been using these dogs to raise cheetahs in captivity um, with a partner because they find that the cheetahs are very stressed out in captivity. They don't really like to do to be in zoos and things like that. Um, but for some reason, when they raise them with a puppy, the cheetahs do much, much better. And a lot of the zoos now around the country, you'll see they'll, they'll actually be taking their, their pair around walking them. Um, but the other aspect of this that's kind of neat is that in namibia where the uh, cheetah come in and sometimes will take um the livestock and the farmers will shoot them um in a different way the, the dogs are helping the cheetahs because they'll now bring in these uh, certain breeds of dogs are very good about keeping cheetahs away from the farms and so there's a uh the cheetah um I want to say the Cheetah Foundation. I don't think that's right. But there's a couple of groups now that have been um, helping to bring these dogs to the farmers in different parts of Africa to help keep the cheetah away uh, in order to protect them from being shot. So it's kind of a double uh, double way that the dogs are protecting the, the cats. And then the cat and the iguana, just really bizarre. There was a woman in New York um, somebody found an iguana on the street in Brooklyn somewhere. Somebody had just, I guess, let their pet go after realizing that it was a big, ornery, nasty thing. And uh, so she, somebody brought it to her, and, and she uh, gave it a home, and it became enamored of her cat, or vice versa, probably more the other way. but um, But the two just became like buddies like this. They'd sleep, they'd eat together. The cat actually would chase the tail of the iguana, and the iguana really just tolerated the whole thing, which I think is remarkable because uh, male adolescent iguanas can be pretty ornery and and not too pleasant. Just some others from those first two books: a, a dolphin and sea lion at a facility in Australia, where the um, at a certain time of day they let some of the animals get into the other animals' pools, and and these two kind of came up with their own language in a way that people say that the you know even though the the sea lion barks, and the uh, dolphin kind of has its yipping sound. They would sound off to each other and then come together and play, and not with any of the other animals. It was always these two that came together. So, of course, they capitalized on that and started using them in some of the shows, and now they're a big hit. Um, polar bears and dogs, you may have heard about this. Um, some of the areas where the polar bears are getting a lot closer to uh, to the human settlements up in, in Churchill in Canada um, and the the sled dogs are really in danger because the bears certainly are capable of and occasionally will kill the dogs but um, but for some reason they've seen now a number of cases where the bears will come in and start to play with the dogs and will come back day after day and actually spend time um, you know playing roughly but not uh, with no injury with these these canines. Um, there was a pig that uh, started to actually changed a woman's life. she was a, a Legal secretary and now she runs this very large um, animal rescue facility in in the u k and it was all because of this pig Edgar, that really became sort of a symbol for her because every animal that she brought home would would become like a, a child to this pig. And the pig would kind of take it in and was the first animal that, that met with it and was kind to it and gentle with it and really sort of helped. Again, a lot of animals that were sick or injured seemed to do well because of the relationship with this pig. And then just a fun uh, pit bull. They have such a bad reputation, but, uh, but this particular one seems to be sort of like this pig, kind of father to all the animals on this farm. So I wanted to do another book. Um I didn't want to do a third of the same book even though there's lots more stories. And uh again another another kind of thing that seems to come around a lot is these these cases of animals doing something that you might call heroic. And um you know again we don't know exactly what's going on in the minds of these animals when they choose to do what they do, but um but I've just found it fascinating how many times you hear about things like this, and it's not always dogs. I mean, there there are certainly a lot of dogs that do heroic things, but uh, but I wanted to kind of get out there and find out what else was going on in the animal kingdom. Still ended up with a dog on the cover because he's just a, a wonderful creature, which I'll talk about in a minute. But um, Unlikely Heroes just, just came out in October, and this is uh, one of my favorites. So here's a um, an elephant seal, a female elephant seal, and this is a story about a, a gentleman that was caring for um, a whole bunch of seals in an exhibit. And at one point, he slipped on a fish or something and fell down. And there were a bunch of other little seals with very, very sharp teeth, very aggressive, nasty little things. And they were coming for him, and they were going to tear him up. And uh, an elephant seal. Yeah. And so uh, so this one named Gimpy, he'd been taking care of this one for a year. It was a little bit older. And um, this one actually got between him and these other seals. It moved itself in between him, got and did sort of a, you know, defensive posture and scared off these other seals while the man, and he, he literally climbed over the seal to get up and get out of the way. So, um, just a you know, again, an animal that you wouldn't expect necessarily to come to your rescue really saved this guy from, from a mauling. Yeah. From other seals, younger ones that were very aggressive. Yeah. So, this is the the animal on the front of the book, um, and this is kind of a, a story of spirit and um, overcoming trauma. Um, this was one of a, a litter of puppies that had been left behind in a basement, I think in Nebraska, uh, a foreclosed home, and there was water on the floor, and this dog 's feet were frozen to the floor um, and when they found him and um, Fortunately, a, a wonderful woman adopted him and was able to. Ultimately, get him these prosthetic limbs. Um, took a lot of a lot of tries and a lot of raising money and a lot of infections and problems. But ultimately, um, the dog has just become this incredible inspiration for her. She started a foundation. Um, she takes him around to meet kids who have you know disabilities and and veterans, and has just really turned this dog into something to celebrate. And uh, he's just he's got just an amazing. Um, An amazing spirit and I just thought that was kind of there was something sort of heroic about that and just because of the kinds of things I write about I like to to get into the conservation stories as well and there are a lot of different kinds of animals that are used uh, in surrogate programs to help advance their species or to help grow a species that's in trouble Um, and out in California they've been using um, these sea otters to um, Mo- sea otter moms to adopt pups that have been abandoned or have lost their mom for some reason, and they 've been doing this for a number of years it 's been a lot of trial and error, but um, it 's been really incredible to see you know some of the the moms have raised you know twenty thirty forty pups that weren 't their own um, and, and allowed them to be reintroduced back into the waters off of California so they 're really kind of helping this this particular population to uh To maintain itself, even though it was it was on a pretty bad downward slide for a lot of years, they 're hunted for their pelts way back when especially so and this is um kind of neat because I know most people aren 't that into rats, and so I like to to give these maligned animals a little credit um, and These are some very large African rats that they have trained not only to sniff out um, landmines and they use them in various countries around the world to help clear fields of landmines. Um, but they also smell uh, tuberculosis, and they've been able to use them to um, to help with patients who who were not diagnosed by humans, so they didn't see it. But when the rats go around and smell the samples, the rats actually have a better uh, be- better percent in terms of finding disease than, than the people did. So these have been used quite a bit in Africa, in different parts of Africa. And uh, who knows how many lives they've saved. But it's just kind of a neat program that I don't think most people have heard of. A... So here's a cat. I promised a cat. And uh, this is a um, a veteran from Afghanistan who probably saw it all, went through pretty much everything bad that, that can happen during war, lost friends, lost, you know, pretty much everything. And was at a point, he told me, that he he wanted to kill himself. He was just so so distraught. And this little stray cat showed up at the base and started coming around to him in particular. And ultimately he took it in and, and he says that this cat, if it hadn't been for the cat, he doesn't know that he would still be here because there were some times when he was just at pretty much the end and the cat would come and rub against him and get in his lap and just, just seemed to sense when he needed the affection and uh, and really was an amazing, amazing part of his life. And ultimately, he was able to get it home, uh, which was quite a logistical nightmare. But he uh, he was able to get it get it to his parents' house, and it actually is living out its days in Oregon now, perfectly perfectly content. Oh, there he is, Kashka. And this is you know you hear about parrots. Saying unusual things sometimes, and this was a, a true story of a, a woman was babysitting a friend's child and left the room for a few minutes and heard the the pet bird suddenly was calling out and it was calling out "mama baby mama baby," and she came running in and the little girl had gotten a piece of food or pop tart or something off the table and was choking on it, and um, they the owner of the bird said she'd never heard the bird say those words before. Um, certainly not together so it was a quite a moment and definitely saved the little girl's life llamas not necessarily animals you think about as being heroic but um, these two both little man on the right there uh, was uh, a, a farmer owned him and there was a huge fire at the farm and they, he lost most of his livestock, most of his animals, but this llama actually herded uh, about 30 or 40 sheep to a different part of the farm and stood in front of them and protected them from the fire. Um, the llama ultimately didn't make it. was burned, but all of the sheep survived uh, after this, this llama got him out of the, the fire area. And then Rojo is a, a llama that's used as a therapy animal. So usually it's dogs and uh, mostly dogs that you hear about as as uh, therapy animals. But this animal's been um, trained to some degree, but mostly is just a really, has a wonderful spirit and very tolerant, doesn't seem to mind people touching it, kids getting on it, pulling its tail, anything. And she takes it around to hospitals and, and you know, different kinds of facilities where people just need a little a little brightness in their day. And she's had some amazing moments where she's seen people just, you know, who haven't said anything in a long, long time or have just been so depressed or so distraught just kind of come out of their shells because this animal just kind of gets in their face and, and forces that out of them. I have a yeah. In the, in the llama with the sheep, was it working with the sheep, you know, before there was a fire? Or I mean was it before the yeah it was so it was the it was sort of those that was the purpose of owning the llama it was kind of protecting oh. his sheep yeah yeah so it wasn't completely out of the blue right. but um that's right <laughs> that would have been really neat though <laughs> uh and this was this is neat this is a huge rabbit I can't quite tell from the picture but um uh a man that uh, a, a diabetic owns this rabbit and at night usually the rabbit would sit in his lap and he pets the rabbit and one night, he and his wife were watching TV. He's kind of dozing off in his chair, and the rabbit's in his lap, and suddenly the rabbit just starts kind of going nuts, and she's pawing at his chest and sort of freaking out. And the wife comes over to see what's wrong, and he had gone into a diabetic coma. And if the rabbit hadn't done that, she wouldn't have known, and um, she was able to, to save his life because of that. So that's Dory, the, the big rabbit hero. So, in general, um, again, this part's a little bit more for kids. But I, I really, all of this work is is for me to, you know, hopefully teach people something they don't know about animals and, and get them to kind of see them in a different light than before, um, give them an appreciation of of I think the emotional capacity that a lot of animals have, in this sense that it's it's not just all about you know us and them. That there there is a lot of crossover. That there's a lot we don't understand. Um, there's so much research now on on animal intelligence, and I think the more of that that comes out, the more we 're going to appreciate uh, just what all of these animals can do also the The conservation message of course, has been very important to me to to really let people know that that there's you know it's it's not just what's happening right here but it's you know the habitat loss around the world the pollution there there's there's a lot of stuff out there that um that you know maybe we think is is beyond us that we can't do anything about but i like for people to see where they can actually contribute in some way to to helping uh keep keep wild animals uh in their homes and and thriving and then the books also are supposed to hopefully instill a little hope in people to bring some some fun and happiness uh, at a time that I think we all could use it. And that's been probably the most wonderful thing about all these books for me is just having people say, you know, my mother was sick and I, I got her the book and she, you know, she really just really enjoyed it or, um, you know, it, it made her happy after a difficult time or um, it's just—it's been such a such a difficult time in the world, and to see animals crossing over and doing compassionate, kind things um, is a really great message for everybody. So, um, so that's kind of why I do these books, and and I'm hoping to continue along this track. Probably no more unlikely books, but I think I'm I'm going to continue to write about animals and and write about science, and uh, just kind of keep it going. Well, thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. It It's nice to have you here. Thank you.